right, and this is Stephen Kent filling in for Caleb this week on the Mill Liberty podcast. This is the voice of liberty for a new generation, and thank you for tuning in and supporting this show. Lots of great stuff coming up in April, and this week we are going to have a little bit of extra fun. But first, a little housekeeping. We just got to get out of the way. If you want to find out more information about the Mill Liberty podcast, you can find us on our home at theoutsetnetwork.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's Stephen with a PH underscore Kent 89 for all sorts of musings about millennial politics, libertarianism, and pop culture. I'm a contributor to the Washington Examiner on the side uh, when it comes to movie reviews. So that's kind of what you'll see a lot from from me when it comes to my writing. I host the Beltway Banthas podcast. I think that is how Caleb, your usual host from the Liberty, um, came to know about me. Uh, Beltway Banthas is a Star Wars and politics show where we look at the politics of the great franchise itself, and we discuss them every week on the show. It's been going on for about two years now. And so I'm bringing a little bit of that flavor from Beltway Banthas to the Liberty podcast this week. So this is your spoiler warning. We will be talking about about details of a movie spoiler warning any complaints that come after a spoiler warning has been issued is just natural selection taking its course we're going to be talking about ready player one the new movie from steven spielberg that had a big weekend 53 million dollar box office it did pretty well for the u.s market um, this is a really fun movie it is a a classic spielberg adventure flick uh, with an all-star cast a couple new faces as well and a really unique story um, I'm going to welcome on a guest now to talk about this, a friend, someone who I've worked with a little bit in the past, and you may know him from Reason TV. He's a political satirist, satirist, however you choose to say that word, Andrew Heaton, everybody. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Oh, we're, we're officially friends now. This is great. It's true. We've crossed the line. Nice. Okay. We've crossed that Rubicon of friendship. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's nice to have you. And uh, you came to mind when I thought of the topic that we want to discuss this week which is Ready Player One, the new movie out in theaters from Steven Spielberg, based off a book uh. by Ernest Cline, the 2011 sci-fi novel. Um, it was a really big book. Um, I went and saw the movie this past weekend. I, I had feels about it. Uh, I think you did too. And yes. I'm so glad that you are fired up about this movie because there's so much to talk about um, when it comes to, one, just the merits of the movie, the artistic stuff, and then talking a little bit about the politics. Um, first, I just had to ask you a run-of-the-mill question. Are you a refugee from New York yet? I remember you were moving down to Texas here soon. Very soon. We're down to the last fortnight of me being here in New York. And then I am going to be in Asia for about six weeks. There's a couple of projects I'm working out uh, out there. I'm also going to do a, a comedy festival in Shanghai. And then when I get back this summer, I move to Austin, Texas. Uh, so I'm I'm short on the New York and, and ready to go. I'm disappointed you're going overseas and not setting up some sort of shadowy bank account for all of your money to go to to avoid taxation. I, I, w- I would never do that. I can't. You even suggesting such a thing is just ridiculous, particularly if this is used as evidence in the future. It's all for very legal above board purposes that I'm going to be over there. Good. We'll let the record show Andrew Heaton is not up to anything suspicious. NSA, since I know you're listening to the Maliberty podcast for dissent. <sighs> Anyways, Ready Player One. Andrew, this is an opportunity to let loose. Uh, first, just tell people what you thought of the movie. Did you like it? Is this a movie that no. people should see? I I was so looking forward to this movie because I read the book 
and thought it was going to be spectacular. And I hated it. I came out of the movie and texted multiple friends with just dripping bile at how angry I was at what a letdown it was. I didn't go on Twitter because I don't know Steven Spielberg and I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Uh, but I'm, I'm willing to come forth now and say that I am personally insulted at that film and very angry with him. I thought it was just saccharine, eye-rolling tripe. And most of it consisted of, uh, here's some sweeping music to let you know the emotions you want to feel, followed by me going, oh, thank you for that cue. How about you earn it as a storyteller? Shut up. Uh, so I did not like it, and and uh, was was firmly against it by the time I came out. Okay, that I mean that is that is a lot there. So, what is this? It's the meanest I've ever been on a podcast. Yeah, it, it is quite, and that is okay. This is a free country. I want yeah. you to kind of help me explain what this story is about because it is based off a novel by Ernest Cline. Came out a couple of years ago. Now I have only seen novel. I've only I seen the movie. The yeah, I figured if you've read it and then went to go see the movie, it had to have been a decent book. I've heard great things. Yeah. It was a best. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah. Explain to listeners who are not familiar with the story what this sort of world is that Wade Watts, um, the main hero in this story, is living in because it's pretty crazy, but it seems relevant in terms of a dystopia we could actually find ourselves in. Yes. So it's there's sort of two worlds that are being explored in the book. Uh, the the world that the protagonist lives in is um, a, a future dystopia, as you mentioned, and, and sort of picture, uh, imagine in your head a, a, a gritty Detroit on the decline, but everywhere. Uh, so it's sort of everything's kind of it's it's like trailer parks stacked up on top of each other. Everybody's kind of living in not quite hovel level, but just every, everybody is um, uh, in, in kind of dingy, dirty surroundings. Something has gone awry. Uh, meanwhile, there is a kind of matrix like uh, computer computer uh, program web um, that everybody plugs into. So it's it's sort of a. Uh, like an all net where uh, it's a VR could, situation. It's a VR situation. So you, you, you people in vans, people in their houses, and people are basically living in this world because it's better um, than the world around them. And uh, uh, it's also owned by um, two specific people, uh, or the the or the at least in the book. I think in the movie it's just one person, but it's owned by um, two people in the book. Uh, and one of them has a controlling interest, and he's dead, and has left a trail of clues. Uh, for a contest, and whoever wins this contest will gain control of this. So imagine basically a, a virtual reality superseding the internet, the internet um, either being absorbed into it or just disappearing, and this virtual reality becoming ubiquitous for everyone on the planet, but it being owned by somebody. Uh, and so the protagonist is, uh, among others, just trying to win this contest because it means exorbitant riches and control of this this wonderful realm. Meanwhile, there's a ominous, evil uh, company that's trying to take control of it in order to, uh, you know, make monetize everything and, and, uh, and, and corporatize everything. Yeah, I love the uh, the villain is in the movie is played by Ben Mendelsohn. He most was most recently seen in Rogue One, playing director Orson Krennic for the Star Wars franchise. Yeah. Uh, and his he did a good job, by the way. Right. I liked him. Yeah, yeah, he tends to always do a good job. He's he's a great actor. Um, he was, was he in the Breakfast Club? Was he the principal? No. No, no, I would no. That's not a thing. Okay, I mean he he just but he has that aura of sort of the evil dean, like he's he's yeah. good at projecting that of the oh yes um, kind of like uh, unlikable but competent middle manager that's you know befouling the kids. 
He did a good job. I liked him. Yeah, and he's, and he's that, the that, that basically sums up his role as Orson Krennic in yeah. Rogue One. Yeah, yeah. And and I think probably the the best scene in this movie was when he tried to like act cool and he had his <laughs> his staff in his ear like yeah. giving him pop culture references so that he could relate to the youths. But you know, yeah. So he's the head of operations at Innovative Online Industries. Shorthand is IOI, and they are a multinational corporation um, that's sort of like an ISP, and they are trying to get their hands on. On Oasis, um, which is run by a different company. Um, I'm losing the name of the company um, founded that actually runs the virtual the virtual reality. Gregarious Games is the is the group that created the company. Um, and basically, yeah, they want to get their hands into it. And so they are deploying a massive force of staff into the virtual reality world. I mean, really to be like thuggish brutes and sort of yeah. like look for the treasure, um, kill the other players, knock them out of the game. Um, and they're and, using and their kill them in real factors. life too. They're also, they're also yeah. murder in real life. <laughs> Which, yeah, we have to get to that. Um, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really kind of just bizarre story, but it, it sort of seems very familiar. I think I wrote a little bit in the examiner this week about um, how we view mega corporations on our own world. And, you know, they have always sort of been this classic villain, um, particularly when it comes to filmmakers like Steven Spielberg. We have a long and rich history in this country and in this, uh, this business of demonizing corporations as the ultimate evil. And you kind of wonder like, oh, where's the government when they're bombing all of these civilians <laughs> and killing people in the streets for this video game? This left me going, what is going on here? Yeah, I agree. Well, I mean, the, the government does show up at the end of the film, right? Because he does get arrested. So it, it, <laughs> the last five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Right, should we should we tell people? Should we give a spoiler alert? Should we have done that? Mm, yes, that will be at the front end. Yeah, there'll definitely be a spoiler, spoiler okay. alert at the yeah. beginning. But or they'll, or they'll put it in the text. Um, so the government shows up, and it happens in the book too. You get the impression in the book that the, the government exists, but it's fairly toothless. Uh, and so the this in in the sort of collapsing wake of society, this this corporation is functioning like a like kind of its own police state. Um, and it's able to get away with with this kind of stuff. But then at the end, it turns out there is a, a government and, and they do crack down on it, both in the book and in the movie. Um, yeah, and I agree with you. We, we do have a long, long tradition of, of kind of demonizing large corporations. In this particular film and book, the, the corporation is an evil corporation. I mean, there's no it's it's not like it's not that they're mad at it for for making money. I mean, they're killing people <laughs> and that kind of thing. You, you do see, you know, there is there is a, 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 a brief kind of. I don't want to say backlash against this, but there's a little bit in at least the 80s. Like if you watch Ghostbusters, the villain's an EPA administrator. So there is oh, like there, there was a period where we were kind of anti-bureaucrat too. Um, I think I think justifiably people just don't like big entities that are difficult to interact with, which I think is a very justifiable fear. But there's a big difference between a corporation and the government, which is that you don't have to interact with a corporation if you don't want to. At least in most situations, you don't. You're not required to buy shoes from them if they're jerks. Whereas you do have to pay taxes. When you first saw, what if you're very this, clever and you go to Asia to fake your own death, like you're about to do, like I'm about to do. When you first saw trailers for this movie, um, were you initially excited? Because I know you're at a point of of, of sort of despair about it. Because um, I want to say for the record that I really enjoyed the movie, having not read the book. And friendship I, over. I hated the trailers. I saw the trailers and I went, this looks like garbage. I'm not sure this is even worth seeing, but I had an afternoon. I went and saw it and it really felt like a, a 2018 digital era Goonies adventure. I actually yeah. really, really enjoyed it. Um, 
were you optimistic going into it initially? I, I was. I, I, I was really excited about it. I was also curious to see how they handled pop culture. The, the book is just riddled with it. Um, and, I, and I suspect that that also, um, just for legal reasons, they probably had to alter it quite a lot because in the book, like he's inside of this world, he's, he's got his own Starship Enterprise and he's got you know, holographic characters from, from other, uh, other genres and, and Star Wars plays in and that kind of thing. And, and you could, you could do that, I suppose, legally in a book, uh, whereas you can't do that in film. Uh, I was very excited. Uh, and, and to, to give the, to give the film a little bit of credit, I think that, uh, I think television has now kind of spoiled me on rapidly building up, uh, emotions for characters, because when you watch Game of Thrones or, or, you know, Breaking Bad or whatever, you you see these really long unfolding stories, and so you you feel like the characters have really walked through whatever they're feeling. Whereas in in film, because you're having to cram everything into an hour and a half, uh, it's like oh the character's crying, so this must be a really meaningful dramatic moment. And I I was not touched by that at all. Uh, it was like ah you've you've swing and a miss, Stephen. Um, Spielberg, yeah, like, like Artemis uh, and Wade Watts hitting it off, uh, going for the kiss like the first time that they, yeah. <laughs> first time that they're in each other's presence, and it's like, oh, this feels like this is just sort of uh, ran to a jog really quick. Yes, yes, uh, and that it, it might be that I'm just that 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 maybe five years ago I would have been like, oh, okay, this is normal. Uh, whereas I maybe this it could just be that this is the death of film, and that uh, from now on out it's going to be long series uh, that, uh, that that carry the torch. I do think you're right about TV spoiling us and sort of uh, getting our expectations warped for when we go to see movies. Uh, because, you know, for a story like Ready Player One, you know, I'd like to see this sort of play out in the way that uh, like Mr. Robot has on television. Um, really long, really brooding, and you sort of get a, a more long form version uh, of the Wade Watts story. I think that could actually be a lot better. Um, but, you know, for what it is, the movie to me, actually pulled off its pop cultural references because I had done some reading going in and I was really afraid that the movie was just going to be um, one nod to a Spielberg movie after another, after another, after another. And it was all going to be sort of this fawning worship of his own past work in sort of this weird meta way. But it seems to me that the story itself was sound. Um, you were have, You had a had a unsuspecting hero rising out of his insecurity to find his confidence and lead a movement, stop a really like insidious bad guy who had a great little army of drones and robots in support of him, got the girl, you get a big mix of characters with different backgrounds. Like it sort of had all the ingredients again of like a classic um, Spielberg adventure movie. And for me, what's I guess I don't know what there is to hate. So for you, you read the book. Why did you dislike it so bad? I just I felt that uh, I felt that it was heavy handed and saccharine in all of the emotional beats to the film, and I didn't feel like uh, they had they had invested enough in what the characters were going through for me to experience that with them. So I felt like I was being forced into um, having to. Uh, uh, acknowledge the emotional states of the characters in a way that I, I don't feel when I watch um, longer things. Um, so that was the main thing for me. I mean, they did alter some things, which I, I think you're going to have to do when you convert a book to a film. Um, but uh, uh, but that was the main the main thing for me. What was your favorite part? Because I am all about uh, the shining scene when they go inside the uh, the old hotel, and you have the one character uh, H who who doesn't uh, has never seen 
The Shining. And when the tennis ball rolls to the back of his foot, uh, he gets distracted and wanders off down a hallway. If you'd seen the movie, uh, you would have known not to do this. He sees mm. the two little girls in the dresses and he goes, hey, little girls, where are you guys going? Can you show me the way out of here? And then you know, he finds himself in the river of blood and then with the old lady out of the bathtub. It was hilarious and I actually felt like it was the kind of pop cultural reference that felt – original and it didn't feel like it was just sort of a hat tip. Um, what did you enjoy in the movie? Well, I, I mean, I, I did enjoy the bad guy tremendously, uh, whose, whose uh, name presently escapes me, but I, I, I did like him. I liked the scene where he was trying to be cool. Um, I, uh, uh, I, I generally towards the end where he's you know actually trying to track them down. I thought he did a good job. Um, I liked the uh, the the Kubrick scene, and I, I did think that was well done. Um, and whoever they had as the dramaturg did a fantastic job in terms of. I mean, it, it looked like the original set. Yeah, uh, I don't imagine that's been preserved, but they did a very good job of replicating it. Can I can I uh, uh, go go back a little bit in our conversation? You um, you, you mentioned that um, you know Hollywood tends to use the, the the big corporation as the bad guy. Do you think that that's just a um, just a place setter that that's an easy reliable thing, or do you think there's an actual um, actual ideological push going on? Yeah. So you know, do I think that? corporations ending up as the bad guys in movies as the result of a Marxist conspiracy? Or do I think it's just right brain creatives taking out their frustration as artists with the corporate environment in which they're forced to work once they get successful in Hollywood? And then it sort of manifests itself in a lot of movies that have this theme. I don't know. Or, or, I mean, the, the, the third option would be that it's just an easy um, – easy trope for the audience in the same way that like if you know the the character sits down by himself with a drink you know that he's troubled and that kind of thing you don't have to spell it out so it's it's possible that it's just a trope they're relying on but um but yeah be, between the between the marxist conspiracy and the uh vented frustration what do you think I think it's vented frustration. So I, I generally over time have gotten more and more skeptical of things like vast right-wing conspiracies and Marxist conspiracies because yeah. that requires an immense amount of coordination and smarts. Uh, and I just yeah. don't believe anymore that people have that. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that it's just generally you have creative types who are frustrated in the environment that they are trying to get successful in. I think you're an artist as well. You might be able to relate to this a bit. And, you know, they they recognize sort of the the follies and pitfalls of corporate culture that doesn't understand their artistic genius. And I think Steven Spielberg is one of those people, George Lucas was, and they were always surprised by the ex- success that they eventually got. And now they still sort of take out that frustration in the movies that they continue to make, whether or not they are a multimillionaire or not. Um, I, you know, I think about some of my favorite uh, my favorite evil companies in pop culture, probably Cyberdyne Systems, Terminator. Oh, yeah. Uh, Umbrella Core for Resident Evil. What, what's the um, one in RoboCop? RoboCop is Omni Consumer. See, that, that one, I saw Robo, I, I didn't see RoboCop when it came out. I saw it maybe five years ago uh, on a web series I was doing. And um, when it took me about 10 minutes to realize the bad guys were bad guys. Because at first, the bad guys are just, you know, they're providing augmented security to the city of Detroit, which seems to need it. Uh, and they're like, oh, no, they're evil. They're, uh, they're, they're, they're killing people. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, George Lucas, I think of someone as being um, he, he, once a classical liberal in some way, like he with Star Wars, he wanted to tell a story about 
um, government oppression. And that's what Star Wars originally was. And it's funny how in the new Star Wars, you get the first glimpse of Star Wars in 2018 and the bad guys in some sense are business interests and people um, who are in uh, business and corporate and corporate life. And you know, I just think that Hollywood is going to continue some of these trends. Um, I, 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 maybe that's not a conspiracy, but it's definitely something that no, I think no. stems from a political bias that people have um, where they're like, what could be the worst possible villain in the world? How about for Wally, we have by and large, the company that ships everybody <laughs> yeah. into space to get fat and, and then kind of like cutting out completely. Like, where did the governments go? Where did, where did rights go? Where did the constitution go? Everything that underpins society before gets supplanted by the corporation in the dystopia of, I think, the liberal, whereas the conservative always goes in the other direction naturally. It's just part of our, our biases going into things. Or and then something that I've observed, um, you know, being in the classical liberal camp or, or what we'd call libertarians in the United States, that there there tends to be just a a um, knee jerk response against anything that's coerced. Uh, where so so you'll have situations where there might be an unethical group or a bad group, but the the sort of um, immediate counter to it is like, well, you know, no one's making anybody interact with them. So uh, I, I, I feel I might I might potentially get blindsided occasionally on that end. So uh, just this past day, I wrote something in the Washington Examiner about um, IOI in Ready Player One and sort of the parallels that it had and the timeliness that it has with our, our Amazon debate that we're having in this country. <laughs> and I sort of saw in Ready Player One on screen, I think a lot of what Amazon's critics see them becoming and aspiring to be, which is basically an all, all encompassing corporation that provides you all sorts of services. Um, you know, today Amazon is in grocery, they're in postal, they're trying to get into defense and like the cloud computing for the Pentagon. Um, they are fleecing cities all over this country um, for their headquarters that they want to set up. They are a really, really big company. And now we're having talk about antitrust regulations and breaking up big companies like this. And it just sort of felt familiar to me with Ready Player One, the bad guys sending quadcopter drones after the heroes throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's sort of is what defines Amazon today. What did you sort of think about capitalism as it was displayed in Ready Player One? Because I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Nolan Sorrento, like, where is the government? How did this happen? And I've been trying to make the case to people that like, this does not happen in a dystopian future unless government and business get together and collude against the people. Because how on earth could uh, IOI capture and detain people and hold them in debtor prisons where they torture them yeah. unless they have gotten themselves some sort of legal carve out. And that's a piece that I feel like doesn't get discussed enough. Yeah, there's there's two things that that I that struck me, or at least struck me with this kind of arrangement that you frequently see in films. Uh, the the first one is that if we were to have this wonderful um, virtual reality universe, <clears throat> that probably came out of a business interest. In the book, it certainly did. Uh, it's kind of a, an Apple Microsoft type company which creates this type of thing. It's not a um, it's not a, a a bureaucrat that invents it for the good of the people. It's it's you know a self interested group that um, is able to to create this value uh, and 
Uh, I, I don't think you see this across uh, the left, like uh, actually uh, President Obama, when he was in office, wrote a very nice op-ed in The Economist where he, he pointed out that you know the, the, the driving engine of the economy was the market and, and that that was a good and important thing. He would, he would restrain it through regulation more than I would, but he you know, recognized that it was not you know, this terrible beast, but rather what was fueling everything. And I think people oftentimes forget that and sort of portrayed as capitalism is just sort of the um, – synonym for materialism and greed, uh, when in at least in its pre- previous uh, verbal iterations, it meant just, you know, private interests own uh, the means of production. Um, the, the other thing that I'm kind of, I, I think is interesting to explore is that a lot of the time um, when when films are looking at things like this, and, and particularly when I talk to people here in New York, uh, it's more about the the relationship between actors and um, a- actors in a, a philosophical sense, not in a Hollywood sense, and um, and entities than it is the the nature of the entity itself. So if it's just a, a big group, um, it must be bad. And so there's sort of a parallel scene between a large company and say like a feudal lord. Uh, but a feudal lord is, is you know, this sort of old old school version of crony capitalism because they're you know they're they're taking money from you by force of law. They are the law, and they're doing it for their own business interests. Um, so, uh, I, I I think that we we tend to compartmentalize and see these things as different um, than a lot of the people that are that are creating such content would. All right, so let's talk regulation and Oasis because I was watching this and I think my inner nanny state tendencies were just sort of screaming out at how dangerous everything going on in this movie was when it came to VR. I'm going to name just like one thing, and you feel free to to raise one of your concerns from. Reading the book or seeing the movie, but how on earth are people allowed to go out into the streets and do this VR experience, <laughs> running around the the sidewalks and fighting on the on the middle of street corners when there's still vehicles going around on the streets? It seems that in this crazy dystopian future, they still have cars driven by people. And people are in VR experiences in the middle of the road. Something about that seems like the regulatory state might actually need to come back and save people from getting run over. Yeah, you know what? Like I, I agree with you. Um, that's uh, that. If we're we're people to do that, and I suppose you know, in the same way that we've got. Um, you know, a, a, a tremendous and, and sad amount of traffic accidents that are caused by people texting and driving. Um, the technology has that capacity to kind of uh, blot out actual good self-management uh, regarding your vehicle and others uh, in favor of what is gripping your attention. And and VR would probably, uh, in this universe, do something akin to that. So yeah, there should be, I would be, as, as, as someone who's generally skeptical of government, I would be very much in favor of traffic cops coming in uh, and making sure that people are staying on the sidewalks and not running around. My gosh, that lady was was doing VR Oasis on her couch while her uh, her kitchen was catching fire, and her kid was just like, "Mom, dinner's on fire! Go get your father!" Yeah, I think if a company was actually like looking out for the best interests of their players, um, you know, really conscious sort of capitalists would install in those headsets something that would detect like crisis around you, because if they're gonna. If they're going to have, they're going to have people. I mean, gosh, your your headset should have a smoke detector on it in, in this in this world. That's uh, a really good idea. I hadn't thought of it. Have, have you have you done virtual reality? By the way, I was actually going to ask you that. So I did virtual reality for the first time over the weekend at Awesome Con in Washington D.C. It was um, a setup in the NASA booth uh, at the convention floor. 
It was really simple. Uh, it was just working in a, a NASA workshop. You walked around the workshop and picked up tools and then delivered them to you know virtual reality um, staffers in the building to build a rocket or something. And then after you assembled the rocket, you basically had to do all the picking up of the devices. It was a, it was an incredible experience just walking around and, and picking something up and feeling like you did it uh, in virtual. And then you also got put in space and were allowed to fly like like kind of like Superman stance. So you'd put your arms out and you would fly and you know you've got complete 360 vision with this thing. And I felt like I was in space for just one moment. It was really, really bizarre. Um, yeah. I had to get my my I had to get my footing back after I took the mask off, but it was a really- It's kind of, it's kind of disappointing when you take the mask off too, right? You're back in the real world. The lighting's not as pretty. Not as you pretty. Can, you, see, you can see rust stain. <laughs> I, it's just, you're just like, oh God, the real universe again. Oh, so I, I gather you've done it before. I've, I've done it twice, uh, both in, in very recent memory. I, I was at, um, I was at uh, Freedom Fest in Las Vegas over the summer, and I tried it once there and was- Blown away by it. Um, the the uh, it was just a very simple thing. There, you basically went up. Um, it, it, or I'll, I'll back up. The 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 virtual reality experience I had in, in Vegas uh, had sensors placed around you so that it could see where your body was, and there was a a range of let's say five feet by five feet that you could walk around in, which is not something that would happen with say like a conventional VR headset that you can buy at home. Um, so with that one, you within this virtual realm, you go up an elevator till you're on top of a building and they've placed in the real world a board that's you know one inch off the ground that you can walk on, uh, but it's a plank extending from this building out into the, the air 30 feet or 30 stories above. And so I could walk out and it felt very much like I was on a plank and then they went jump. And I, without even thinking about it, went into a like a barrel roll uh trying to save myself because all my monkey instincts kicked in i don't know why that i don't i don't think that would have spared me if i if i fell off 30 floors uh but apparently that's my my instinct uh i was amazed by that that how how gripping that was and a lot of people wouldn't even walk out on the board because it was too real for them um then I did it again. A friend of mine has a headset, and I, I was hanging out with him over the summer, and we tried a bunch of different games. And I, I was just—I was amazed at how uh, how pervasive that is. I, I think that that is going to be an entirely new medium. That's it's in its infancy. It's going to be a huge part of technology moving forward to the point that I predict. Um, rather than having a Kindle, by the time I have children that read books, I think they're going to put on a virtual reality headset so that they can read it, read whatever they're reading in Taj Mahal or in inside of a mansion or whatever. I, I think that it'll become very, very pervasive. Oh boy, that's a scary that future. Right here. I think I think uh, Ready Player One um, in, in that regard is is uh, um, spot on. I you know I don't know that it will necessarily manifest in, in the particular way that does it, but I, I think that it, um, the idea that it'll become uh, as as ubiquitous as smartphones, I, I think is is accurate. Yeah, I think I think what Ready Player One does get right is that we are headed rapidly and and I would say dangerously towards a world of disenchantment with reality, where people fall into the virtual world to escape from their problems and be stimulated in whatever way they want. Like the on demand nature of our economy now and technology, basically has has gotten us all accustomed to having everything the way that we want it, um, and virtual reality offers a reality where that can be your everyday experience. What I, what I think the movie gets wrong, and I guess this would cap the conversation off, is that it, it depicts, I think, the 
the leftist nightmare of the world, which is basically joblessness, no opportunity, and overpopulation. Like we sort of see these these ideas play out in in sort of left of center movies all the time. It was the Matt Damon movie where the world was oh, overpopulated. Elysium, Elysium. Yeah, yeah, you know that was that was kind of like again another corporate another corporation that left the earth and you had to buy into the private life or be rich and wealthy. Or oh, that live. that one was super over the top. Like the the villain had. Yeah. Rich, um, like like tattooed onto his face, and like any any time you've got that many wealthy people congregated in a compact area, just Episcopalian churches sprout out, and then they start building charities. So I thought that it was just completely <laughs> off the mark. I, I, th- I thought the economics of that film were less believable than the idea of Matt Matt Damon fighting a cyborg in space. I thought that was more realistic in its portrayal of the future. A dystopian future where the rich do not actually set up a million foundations to benefit the people yeah. around them. Um, Andrew Heaton, thanks so much for coming on the Mill Liberty podcast. My pleasure. Thank and, you. Uh, bantering with me a little bit about movies and politics. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Where can people find like all of your work online? I know you, you've got a couple different projects going on. You're over at Reason. Um, tell people a little bit about what you are doing and where they can find everything you're involved in. Uh, the best place to go is my website, which is mightyheaton.com. That's uh, the word mighty, M-I-G-H-T-Y-H-E-A-T-O-N.com. You can see a ton of videos that I've done over the last couple of years with Reason. Uh, we just wrapped up Mostly Weekly, which is sort of a Craigslist version of John Oliver. Uh, and that was a, a fun web series we did. We've done several parodies like uh, Game of Thrones. We've got a couple of things in the works that, that I will post as they happen. I've also got a newsletter. So if you want to sign up for that, you'll have uh, a, a regular uh, update on the, the generally funny projects that I'm working on. And you can access that through my website. All right, folks, do it. Andrew Heaton, we'll do this again soon. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you, the listener, for sticking around for all this episode of the Mill Liberty Podcast. I have been your host, Stephen Kent, filling in for Caleb. Um, Check me out on Twitter. You can find me at Stephen underscore Kent 89. And you can find my podcast about Star Wars and politics every week called Beltway Banthas. You can find us on iTunes as well, along with other fine outset podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.